What is good, Auburn, Alabama? It's so nice to be back in the studio. You are listening to Saturation Italicized on WGL 91.1 FM. I'm your host, Lee. And I'm Lauren. And I want you to know that this week I didn't say I was you. I know. I was impressed by that. Which, by the way, I can't remember where I was the other day, but I was I was talking to someone. I was introducing myself or something, and I, I said the wrong name. Like, I said someone else's name. Girl. I, th- I think I might have said, hi, I'm Lauren. Like, You're I just it, on this path. It's weird, but like after it happened, like I counted out and I was like, there's been three times in recent memory where I've told someone my name was just straight up not my name. It was very strange, but I guess final season will do that to you. Yeah, for real. How's your final season going so far, Lauren? Um, honestly, better than anyone's that I know. I finished <laughs> my all my stuff last Friday, so I'm just kind of chilling this week. That's like arguably one of the best parts about being in design is at least for graphic design usually our finals are due the week before yeah because they're project based so you present in class and it makes it so much nicer because finals week like since I switched into design like I do not have finals week stress it's so nice I have week before finals yeah exactly but you don't feel like the communal stress of Auburn's campus exactly (laughs) it's kind of off so it feels weird and then like all my stem friends or like my stem brother are just kind of staring at me with jealousy and I'm like I'm sorry I was in the library the other day and the wait for Panera was straight up like an hour to two hours that's awful I was at work it was so bad that's just too long but you know it's not bad CGI CGI that's what we're talking about today computer generated imagery which is created, that creates still or animated visual content with computer software. So I don't know about you, but I did not know anything about CGI. No, I know nothing about CGI. I know like there has to be like a decent amount of overlap with design in it. I mean, a lot. I mean, it's basically motion graphics. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of, I don't know, intense motion graphics. But CGI is also known as 3D rendering or 3D imaging, and it's just 3D computer graphics that are used to create characters, scenes, and other special effects. CGI dates back to the 50s, where it was actually first used in 1958 in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which I didn't know. And I think is cool. I've never seen Vertigo. I want to. I haven't it either. looks creepy. It does. Like I've heard so much, and I've seen other Alfred Hitchcock stuff, but not Vertigo. So now I feel like I have to. But we should watch it. We should. That was like the first introduction of 2D graphics, and it wasn't until 1972 that they introduced 3D graphics with a short film called A Computer Animated Hand by Edwin Catmull and Fred Park. So. It's been here for a while. And CGA, C- CGA, CGI is created with three different methods. You can, one, use algorithms to create complex, complex fractal, fractal patterns. I cannot speak. Or two, 2D pixel-based image editors can produce vector shapes. Or hey, vector three, shapes. I know, vectors. And then three, 3D graphic software can generate anything from, like, simple shapes to complex forms using flat triangles and quadrats quadrilaterals which is what I think the guy did in the animated short film because he drew like 350 polygons on his hand and then digitized it I have no idea how he did that but well the, the polygons is that not similar to what fractal patterns are see I'm also wondering that they these all sound one or three they all sound super similar I know I feel like this is still like even after my research just a tad bit confusing I feel like I would have to be hands-on doing this to completely understand it. Well, this is definitely like a 
you know, CGI for Dummies course. So. Yeah, this is. Taught <laughs> by somebody who learned CGI earlier today. <laughs> so CGI requires help from a lot of different people. So I'm going to kind of go through the list and explain their roles so that we can better understand, like, how it actually starts. So it first starts with the art department where they translate the director's vision into like a visual to share with the team and they kind of go from there. And from there they go to pre-visualization artists and the website called it pre-vis, so maybe that's what the cool people call it, but they create the first 3D representation of the final visual that everyone agreed on. And they make low-quality versions of the ac action sequence using artwork and like 3D models and stuff. And then they move on to the asset department, which they, this is why I think it's interesting, they match visual effects to real world objects that either don't exist or are too expensive to make. So it's designed by modeling artists, texture painters, and like a lot of other people. That, that reminds me of um, like the sound people in mm -hmm. movies who like, yeah. when they want a crunched paper effect, they never just crunch paper for exactly. it. They always do the most like, off the wall like crazy stuff so and then it much. always sounds perfect exactly like everything's so intricate like down to the wire movies so, are so strange a any video media like when you look at commercials like you know the ice creams like actually mashed potatoes or yes like it's very all strange yeah it's all really weird in that way um but from the asset department, they move on to research and development, and these people build new softwares and tools to accomplish tasks. So they're like the computer science, like, back-end people. <laughs> and then it moves to animation, and then from there they go to match move, which is also known as motion tracking, which, this is interesting, it incorporates 3D data to live action footage. So they use like a virtual camera to make things move like a camera would in live action footage. So I'm thinking here like, have you seen the stills of the people on Twilight who would wear the green suits and then yes. be the werewolves? I'm yeah. assuming that's what that yeah. is then. I think so. Those are so funny. Right? And then there's FX simulation and these artists are responsible for cre recreating real world real world elements like fire, water, hair, explosions, things like that. So that's also like super detailed oriented, which would be crazy. And then we go to lighting and then these people apply lighting to all of the digital scene, make it cohesive. And then from there they go to matte paint where an image of digital, so matte painting is like if you have a location that you can't visit or that they're not real, somebody uses digital or traditional painting to make it look like it's real. That's so cool. I know, right? Because like there are places in movies that just straight up don't exist and matte painters made or that. Or I like when um when you see like backgrounds from like, I don't know, space movies or something and mm -hmm. they'll have the floor looks like the actual floor from like what you see in the movie and it'll be actually like 3d and physically made but then the background's all green screen yeah and in the movie like it literally like blends into each other so, so nicely but yeah. then you see the like Behind real the version of it and it yeah just, it's crazy it's insane how they do it it this that's why this is so complex because they have to make it look so real and there's so many moving parts which is just crazy um and then there's compositing where they layer all the elements into a shot and make it photorealistic and then there's like the production people those are just the people that are like project managers um they manage the budget hire artists and all that kind of stuff but that's all to say cgi is everyone on deck 
So when you were researching this, was it kind of hard to find like a laid out order of how this was done? Or is it, does it seem like in movies there's like a very strict hierarchy of who does what? I think, I think there's like a strict hierarchy on who does what. Because if you don't, I feel like there would just be craziness and things wouldn't get done. Mm -hmm. Because there seems to be like a strict order and a strict like task management on who gets what movies in general it's one it's crazy to me that two things directors obviously like incredibly creative people Mm -hmm. incredibly like you know eccentric usually like have a lot going on in their head like truly like some of the most creative creatives out there yeah but movies themselves to put them together it has to be incredibly structured like my friend Anna is in the film major at SMU And she has, like, put together a lot of, like, production schedule stuff. And Mm -hmm. it's, like, they'll have to sit down months before and be, like, okay, we need to film this, this, this on the same day because we can use, like, this location at these places. But in the movie, they're not, like, in order, obviously. And it's – obviously, it's saving, like, a lot of time, effort, money and stuff. But I feel like if I worked in the movies, it would be so hard to, like, sit down and be, like, this would be – the most useful it just seems like a logistical nightmare yes yes like something i could not handle but really impressive just the way like creativity can meet structure like that which is honestly like it's kind of design like design is such a creative field but it also has to be incredibly structured yeah that's true yeah i remember i helped my friend make a short film not this past summer but the summer before and we had to make drawings like frame by frame of what we wanted to shoot and I had never really thought about like you have to plan this out so much in advance like you have to do your sketches yes so I was looking up I was gonna ask you what your favorite CGI in a movie was if Mm -hmm. you can think of any off the bat and I was like well what would I answer and I was like 2001 a space odyssey like looks incredible Mm -hmm. but I just looked it up and have you ever seen that movie no I don't think I have beautiful beautiful such a good use of retrofuturism obviously mm. like for then it was just like futurism right <laughs> but for us now it'd be retrofuturism <laughs> but funny. there was no cgi in that movie oh that's crazy i mean i think that avatar is crazy i, I haven't seen avatar is not a new one coming out there is a new one coming out and i haven't seen it either but if you just look at the pictures like you can look at some behind the scenes stuff i mean they are blue people <laughs> like they use so much cgi it's crazy i just looked up a list of like best C- best movies cgi like ever blue and avatar was number three on the list but What's it also number has one? number one is star wars okay yeah that was also on my list um let me see what else is on this list what have i seen um oh pan's labyrinth yeah i guess that did have good cgi have you ever seen that no david I Bowie movie. it's like one of those children's films that's for children, but you watch it and it, like, makes you uncomfortable, if that yeah. makes any sense. Like, I saw it and I did not feel normal watching it. Have you seen Interstellar? No, no. I know, I know Girl, I'm the worst. And I've been so told so good. many times to watch it. It has really good CGI. I will say it's kind of long. I think it's, like, two and a half or three hours, but I think every second of that movie matters. And... It just all looks so real. And at the end, it kind of just blows your mind. It's very artful. I definitely... No, I want to watch it. I don't know why I haven't yet. Um, Have you seen War of Worlds? No. That movie is sick. You should watch it. And it also has really good CGI. And I didn't realize it was done in 2005, but apparently it was. And it looks phenomenal. Oh, it has Dakota Fanning. 
Tom Does Cruise. It? Yeah. Yeah, I knew it had Tom Cruise. Um, well, with that, I'm going to take a little break. We will be listening to Acolyte by Slaughtery Beach Dog. Truly a beloved song of mine, so I really hope you all enjoy it. You're listening to Saturation Italicized on Weagle 91.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Saturation Italicized on Weagle 91.1 FM. I hope y'all enjoyed our little little conversation about CGI. I certainly learned a lot. It was very interesting. Definitely talked about some movies I want to watch now. Yeah, for real. And I will watch Interstellar soon. I can like, <gasps> I can feel, I can feel people listening to this like, like wondering why I have not seen that movie. Just absolutely like. Disgusted. Literally. And okay. I would be too. I mean, it looks amazing. I know it's like one of those movies like everyone's supposed to see. It is one of those movies. It again, it's really long, but it's like when you're in it, you're in it. And the first, like I can remember the first time I watched it. You've seen it more than once. Yeah, maybe like three times. Not oh, like wow. a lot. That, but, I mean, that's, that's nine hours of my life. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot for a movie. Yeah. See, it's like rewatch or watch a new movie or rewatch what Hot American Summer. True. And, oh, that's there's always the go-to's. See, I haven't seen that either. Funniest movie. Funniest movie. Like in like on existence like that literally like it does not get old i've probably rewatched that movie at least six or seven times now and i have not once gotten tired of it i laugh at every that's single good. joke that's good and it's one of those movies the more you watch it the more you see like jokes you missed and it's just it's so funny but i think it's time to jump into our next topic of dis- discussion which is an artist I've come to be really fond of over the past couple of weeks. Um, I learned about this artist in art history recently um, and everything I found out about her um, through that class, through my own research, has just amazed me more and more. Um, this artist is Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven, also known as the Baroness. I will probably be calling her the Baroness throughout this um, just for like shortness sake. Um but she was born on July 12th in 1874 in the German Empire. So I, I don't know why it was listed as the German Empire. I don't know if just like it was so long ago that was before like Germany was Germany. I don't know. That's just that's just history. I'm talking about art history. <laughs> um, but she died December 14th, 1927 in Paris, France. So the first thing I read about her involved her relationship with her father, where he was described as temperamental and controlling, but also had a really big heart. So, you know kind of double-edged sword there, a complicated relationship. And in her art, she related the ways that political structures promote masculine authority in family settings, maintaining the state's patriarchal societal order. And that relationship with her father seems to have, like, deeply affected how she spent the rest of her life because she lived in a way that was incredibly anti-patriarchal. And I think everything she did was to go against gender norms. Um... However, her relationship with her mother was filled with a lot of respect and admiration and actually, like, foreshadowed a lot of her life as her mother would find objects and then find ways to repurpose them for fun or for her job. It didn't really specify. Um, but I was, as we talk more about her, we'll definitely see how both of these relationships, like, really formed who she was later in her life. In her young adult years, she trained and worked as an artist and a vaudeville performer and had numerous affairs with artists in Berlin Munich and Italy. She studied art in Dachau, Dachau, near Munich, um, and she married a Berlin-based architect named August Endel 
in civil service on August 22, 1901 in Berlin, where she became Elsa Endel. However, they had an, an open relationship, and in 1902, she became romantically involved with a friend of Endel's, a minor oh, poet no. and translator. Well, it was an open relationship, so he knew okay, about it. Okay, good point, yeah. good point. Um, and uh, the three of them actually went and took a trip together to Palmero, Sicily in late January 1903. So clearly, um, she was very much romantically ahead of her time uh, with her romantic relationships because, like, she's having an open relationship in the early, early 1900s, like 1902. So it's, like, kind of crazy because, like, we see open relationships now and you're, like, wow, that's such a new, like, 2020s idea. But, no, like, she was doing this way back when. Um, True. However, after the trio traveled to Sicily, um, the Indles' marriage disintegrated and she divorced uh, August Indle and then proceeded to marry the friend. I'm not surprised. His name was, uh, did I say his name? Felix Paul Grieve. Yeah, she ended up marrying Grieve. But if you thought, like, anything about her was, like, crazy before, just just listen to this. By 1909, the two were in deep financial trouble. With his wife's help, with the Baroness's help, he staged a suicide and departed, and the what? two departed for North America in late July 1909. In 1910, Elsa joined him in the United States, where they operated a small farm in Sparta, Kentucky, not far from Cincinnati. However, in 19... This is not funny. It's not funny. In 1911, Grieve deserted her and went oh, to what? a... Bonanza, Bonanza Farm in North Dakota. And that was, like, the last he was, like, in her life. So, like, Dang. her early, like, young adult romantic life was definitely full of uh, trials and tribulations. Yeah, for real. But, like, honestly, like, that's so artist of her. Like, I can't even, like, True. I can't fault her for that. Um, She moved to New York City. And in New York City, the Baroness supported herself by working in a cigarette factory and by posing for artists such as Louise Boucher, George Biddle, and Teresa Bernstein. She appeared in photographs by Man Ray, George Grantham Bain, and others. Um, I actually had the pleasure of looking at some of her photo or her modeling for Man Ray's pictures, and they're really wonderful. Probably will post them after this um, after this episode. Really good, and her work with photography I found to be super interesting. Like because like Man Ray, her Duchamp, they were all physical artists as in painting sculpture but also did a lot of photography too and their photography seemed to represent a lot about them um they modeled for each other it seemed to be like a very close-knit group in Mm -hmm. new york city um which i find super interesting um the baroness was given a platform for her poetry in the little review where starting in 1918 her work was featured alongside chapters of james joyce james joyce's ulysses which we've all heard of So, clearly, she was doing pretty well for herself at this time. Excuse me. She had been considered the Baron... She... The Baroness was considered America's first Dada, which I think is super interesting. That is interesting. I don't know if necessarily she was the first female Dadaist, but when I read, it just said the first Dada. And I think that's really incredible because she truly encaptures the idea of Dada, which is just spontaneous, like spontaneous like mixtures of everything in art of also like nothing I don't know if you know this but they chose the word dada um because it kind of means nothing it's just a weird word that can encapsulate the weirdness of this art style 
I love that. Um, I will actually take a pause here um, after talking about her work in New York so we can go to commercial break. But don't go anywhere. Soon we will be talking about her poetry and her artwork. And um, after her artwork hit the world and her uh, her what partnership with Duchamp, which is super interesting. Sort of exciting, so yeah. do not go anywhere. You're listening to Weagle 91.1 FM. This is Sober to Death by Carsey Headrest. What's good, everyone? So glad you're listening to Saturation Italicized. I hope you've been enjoying our conversation on the Baroness. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got so much stuff to go over with her. She's She truly lived a life. So, a big life. <laughs> a big life. So we left off talking about how she was the first American Dada, which, again, like, we didn't touch on this either, but... I also think it's incredible that she's considered the first American Dada when she's from Germany and she moved. I also thought that. Um, and she, but she was doing, like, she just did so much for this, like, art time period, like, while she was in New York. And she was truly, like, she was in, like, the group, like, the Duchamp group and Man Ray. And, like, she truly helped, like, front run so much of this movement. And I want to say, like, Obviously, like, there's been so, like, obviously there's been so many, like, female artists um, in history or in art history who have, like, helped front run so many movements and then pushed to the ground. But, and I know know we said this a lot before the break, but to be considered the first American Dada is really just such a feat, especially when, you know, Duchamp kind of, like, holds so much of Dada in America um, because of his work with the urinal. But... We'll we'll come back to that in a second, actually, because there's some um, there's some rumors that fly around with that piece. But we'll uh, go back in uh, chronological order. So in New York, the Baroness also worked on assemblage, sculptures and paintings, creating art out of rubbish and and trash she collected from the streets, um, which is which, you know, is just so Dada. So uh, ready made, remade work. the Baroness was known to construct elaborate costumes from found objects, creating a kind of living collage that erased the boundaries between life and art, which uh, this is kind of what I was saying was going to be a callback to her mother is that's what her mom did. She found new purposes for mm. like everyday objects. And I think that really I helped. That. Yeah, I think that really helped her artistic drive later on and um, what she found to be art and what she found to be interesting. Um, but I think the best way to describe, like, ready-made clothing and her, like, living collage outfit she would make would be to think about Harper from Wizards of Waverly Place with, um, like, her rubber duck dress. Iconic. Or her marker dress. Like, we look at that and we laugh, but that literally was Dada. Like, that is Dadaism, what she was wearing. That's so true. Harper is she was one of a kind she was literally ahead of her time she was i wonder if like the writers of wizards of waverly place like knew kind of what they were doing there like i i don't know i mean they're adults they've definitely heard of dada if they're in an artistic field which you know tv is um but yeah super super interesting and honestly like i hate to say it i hate to be the one to say it but those costumes she wore straight up art like literally they straight are. up art they're they so are. cool the crayola one like i literally can remember it like perfectly like yeah, I was the just movement in it yeah awesome yeah. awesome it was iconic but uh back to the baroness i found this quote about her that i found really interesting which was um her elaborate costumes both critiqued and challenged the 
bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie, notions of feminine beauty and economic worth. She adorned herself with utilitarian objects like spoons, tin cans, and curtain rings, as well as street debris that she came across. The Baroness's use of her own body as medium was deliberate to transform herself into a specific type of spectacle, one that women who complied to the constraints of femininity of the time would be humiliated to embody. I thought that quote was incredible. Yeah, that's a lot. And... Going back to earlier what I was saying where she lived a very anti-patriarchal life, like, I think she not necessarily struggled with gender. Like, I obviously don't know that, but I think she very much challenged the notions of what was feminine and what Mm -hmm. was masculine. And she specifically portrayed herself in a way that was not the clean, cute, uh, quiet feminine that would have been popular in the 1920s would have been popular now like mm-hmm. even if she was doing this stuff now we'd we'd look at someone walking on the street wearing an outfit a sculpture made out of trash and you'd look and be like oh my gosh that's so gross that's so weird but she was doing it deliberately also to you know take control of her body again because when you're a woman dressed how a woman should be dressed like in a catalog at this time or you know, they had very specific ways of what was okay to look like in public. She was deliberately going against that, yeah, um, which was just incredible. And I think it's one of those things, like, I think we hear a lot about, like, um, what's it called? What's it called? You know, the type of activism where you're not really, like, fully embodying what you're talking about? Performance activism. And mm. we see a lot of that. But I think she, I don't know, she just really, truly, like, lived what she preached and yeah I I just can't imagine how scary it would be to do that in the 1920s but yeah I agree oh my I'm running out of time I gotta hurry oh my goodness um (laughs) but I think this mantra gave her control over the idea of her own body and her own nudity she opposed consumerism and aestheticism as we've talked about and used her body as ready-made outfits to combat these things she was both rational in her ideals and irrational in irrational in her exhibitions of them um again like i think her opposition of consumerism really incredible i'm like i've told you this million times i'm super against consumerism which like i can't even say like i love buying clothes but she like she practiced what she preached to like such a beautifully artistic extent um one of life's biggest mysteries about her i think the most interesting thing surrounding the Baroness would have been her involvement with Duchamp's piece, The Fountain, the famous urinal piece we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, she was friends with Duchamp and even photographed his feminine alter ego, which we talked about last week or the week before. I can't remember. After her death letters were, fo- were found between the two, where she seemed to have come up with the idea of The Fountain, but not entirely. Basically, the best way I can explain this is that the way the letters were written, it was kind of unclear of who truly came up with it. It was just that they both had a really large hand in it um, and simply did not submit the piece as – and I think she did not submit the piece as um, Duchamp was able to question the idea of art, whereas – if she had submitted it as a woman, no one would have had this bigger conversation about what is art, does this qualify as art? It would have just been thrown out. It would have been like, oh, crazy woman thinks journal is art, so True. let's throw it away. Whereas Duchamp, who was he also was affluent, yeah, he was on the board. He was yeah. super affluent in the community um, it, at this time. What he submits is going to be up for conversation of what it means. 
Um, it's not necessarily like I don't think anyone really thinks that Duchamp stole the piece from her. They were really good friends. Um, and the writings did not seem to indicate that. But it does indicate that she had a really large role in that um, piece being submitted. Sadly, in um, 1927, she perhaps ended her own life. Um, She died of gas suffocation, and it's not really known if she forgot to turn the gas off, if someone turned it on, or if it was intentional. Um, Prior to this, in 1923, she had moved back to Germany where she expected better opportunities, um, but the economy had been devastated post-World War I. and she lived on, quote, the verge of insanity until her death. Wow. Which, um, you know, like, you know, female rage, female insanity that's so real. Can't blame her. Um, she was truly an eccentric woman. And I was telling Lauren this earlier, but, like, I cannot express how much I've loved learning about her. How much, like, if I was an art historian, which, like, you know, I, I guess I could do this for fun if I wanted to. Like, I would love to have a thesis on her and to learn more about her I find it kind of insane I haven't heard about her up until my yeah I haven't heard of her ever you brought her up and in my 4,000 level art history class like so so far into this major and she was considered the first Dada and yet I heard about Duchamp in the urinal years ago I heard about that in high school no literally um I think it's really sad she's been looked over. I If I could have history with, or if I could have history, if I could have dinner with anyone dead or alive in history, it would be her. I'm absolutely floored by this woman. I think she's incredible. Um, and with that, we will take a break and listen to the song Lovers Rock by TV Girl. And after that, we'll uh, talk a little bit about Robert Frost, I think. Yeah. Super excited to hear that from Lauren. You're listening to Saturation Italicized on Weagle 91.1 FM. Don't go anywhere. Bye, Dr. Phil. Bye. We'll see you next week. It's so nice that he comes in here and talks to us. And now he's, like, running out of the student center. And he's going to fly back to wherever he films the Dr. Phil show and yells at teen moms. Bye, Dr. Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lauren, I hear I'm going to learn about Robert Frost today. Yeah, so we're actually talking about what one website calls the most misread poem in America which is The Road Not Taken. And this is the poem that everyone knows, but... And my mom hates. Really? Can't she? So she teaches sixth grade English, so, like, they talk about this poem, obviously. Mm -hmm. And she literally cannot stand this poem. Why? I don't... Honestly, I don't know. I don't think I've ever asked why she doesn't like it. I think she just finds... Like, I think she finds it annoying, but I'm sure that's after, like, 20 years of reading it fair to sixth graders who do not care about poetry well miss wendy i'm sorry about this (laughs) but i am going to talk about it anyway um first i'm going to read you the poem just as a refresher because i think we know like three of the lines but i think everyone forgets it's an actual poem (laughs) so two roads two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry i could not travel both and be one traveler long i stood and looked down one as far as i could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden, be- had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, 
yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubt if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two, road di- two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And that has made all the difference. Yep. And obviously, this poem talks about a journey where the speaker chooses one path, and by choosing one path, he rejects the other and the one that he chooses, he says, is preferable because the grass was less less worn. But then he later says that they're equally traveled. So the two roads are equal. They're interchangeable. And then the speaker claims that these changes have made all of the difference because he wants to comfort himself. Like that line, and that has made all the difference, that is him just comforting himself for the choice that he made. Mm, he's reassuring himself. Exactly. So it's not this poem isn't a poem of individualism but as the Paris Review that calls this the most misunderstood poem says that it's a self-deception it's a poem about self-deception we practice when constructing the story of our lives oh so he's just saying like he's just making up excuses on why he chose that road to make himself feel better. That's instead so of like sick. having a legitimate reason why he chose it. So it's like if we were to graduate and you know talk about like oh well we went to Auburn because of this this and this. It's like that's kind of what this poem's saying is us like reassuring ourselves for why we made that choice. Yeah. That's and then, awesome. Um somebody I'm going to try to say his last name, Franklin Trisha, memorably put it the best example of all American poetry of a wolf in sheep's clothing. So it's mm-hmm. like praising you for being an individualist but you're not really an individualist all the choices we've made have been made before yeah and it's just this idea of like self-deception to justify the choices you make that's super interesting right and I feel like like it says like everyone I was reading an article about it and it says that like it's in a news report. It's been in a news report 2,000 times over the last 35 years, which wow. averages to about, like, once a week, which is crazy to think about how many times this is referenced. Like, you can just say two roads diverge in a wood. And exactly. I'd say, like, that and the red wheelbarrow have to be, like, the yeah. two most famous yeah. poems, like, ever. They just – you just know. But in reality, you don't actually know unless you listen to Saturation and Italicize. <laughs> I think that goes to show that, like – Every poem, no matter how much you dive into it, like, there can be more, like, there taken can. out of it. Literally, like, we d- we need to talk about poetry more on here, um, which I, well, we have time to. Um, but, like, literally just where poets put line breaks, where they add mm-hmm. M dashes, where they put the periods, where they choose to use commas if they choose not it's to use so punctuation. Deliberate. It's so deliberate. It always has a bigger meaning. What doesn't have a bigger meaning is the game we're about to play. Good segue. Good segue. <laughs> it, it took me a second. I was like, how am I going to word this? But, um, of course, we could not leave y'all this week without some little trivia game. Um, leave you walking away or let you walk away with uh, more art history knowledge than you've already gotten. Uh, but here's some wacky artist facts. I, I guess we're wait. moving away from quote identification a little bit. Um, but these little wacky facts were too good not to talk about. Sounds so good. let's just jump right in. Which artist believed he was the reincarnation of his dead brother? A. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Okay. okay. Which is like so real. Like, yeah, artists would think that. Like, yeah. straight up. Um, 
A, Picasso. Okay. B, Dolly. Or C, Manet. See, I don't know really anything about any of their personal lives, so this is kind of a shot in the dark. Picasso sucked. I'm going to say Dolly. You're correct. <gasps> wow. And I was literally waiting to cr- click on the Vine Boom sound effect just so, like, if you got it wrong, I could boom it. But no, good job. Good job. You could still use it if I was correct. Yeah, it's not as funny, though. Yeah, it's not as much ridicule. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, But, yeah, that's pretty much all it said was he believed he was the reincarnation of his dead brother. And something, something about how there's always silhouettes in his work that are representative of him being the silhouette of his brother or vice versa. I mean, he does all that surrealism. That was my thinking. Like, a surrealist Mm -hmm. would believe that. Yeah. Yeah, Or just, you know, any crazy artist. Which is pretty much all all of them. them. (laughs) (laughs) Which artist had a piece hanging up down hanging upside down in the MoMA for 46 days before someone noticed. Yeah. Which, like... Oh, my gosh. We're really, like, the... Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry, y'all. I keep forgetting to turn that uh, alarm off. Anyways, um, so real that literally the MoMA, like, the biggest art... One of the biggest art museums in the world would, like, mess up that badly. But do we think it was A, Pollock... B, Kandinsky, or C, Matisse. And I chose these uh, choices to trip you up. I tried to find yeah. off the wall, like, artists who could potentially have yeah, an upside down piece. literally thinking that. I was going to narrow down my choices based on if their work could be upside down, but you already did that for me. Oh, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't going to make this easy for you. <gasps> I'm going to – what are they again? Uh, Pollock, Kandinsky, or Matisse. I'm going to go with Matisse. Are you looking at my screen? No. Well, you're I'm correct. Just smart. You're Please. so smart. Yes, it was his painting La Bateau. See, I don't Bouteau? I don't know what that is, but Oh, I don't I don't either, but it was hanging up upside, upside down. down. What year was it upside down? Was this recent? Or like I don't know. How old's the MoMA? I have no idea. I have no, I don't know if this was recent or not. It does not matter. They, people should know. And I imagine someone know. just like, I imagine someone probably just like walked up to like a security guard and was like, hey, like, I'm pretty sure this piece is upside down. Like someone who just knows about art history or something, which is just so funny. So funny. This, uh, this next one, you're really going to like. It's kind of a long uh, prompt, so bear with me. But okay, which artist... Would seal a box and add a date to create a time capsule at the end of every month or year. I'm not sure, month or year. Some of those box items included objects such as a mummified foot. What? Carolyn Kennedy's birthday cake. A 17th century German book on wrestling and drawing of the 1950s <coughs> with icons such as Jean Harlow's dress. Oh, I, I messed that sentence up. Uh... <laughs> Jean Harlow's dress or Clark Gable's boots? A, Klein, B, Warhol, or C, Jasper Johns? I'm going to go Warhol. <gasps> I'm so proud of you. You got them all right this week. <gasps> really? Yes. The The Warhol thing, like, I looked up, I was trying to find artists famous in, like, the 70s solely because, like, Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake was going to be a giveaway mm-hmm. um, time period-wise. But, yeah, I mean, Warhol was also a freak. The thing about <laughs> the thing about I artists, think. like, ever, like, we look back at, like, 
like literally even the baroness like a 1920 1920s artist and you're like oh my gosh like she's insane and then you look at warhol and you're like oh my gosh he's insane but wait wait dolly thought he was a reincarnation of his brother he's insane and we look at artists now and we're like we're not like that and it's like no i am sure in art history in like 50 years they're gonna look back on 2020s artists and be like yeah like that was the year everyone was stuck inside and like they went, went crazy, crazy yeah. and then probably produced some insane work yeah that's accurate but this is the first week you've gotten them all right i know i feel like i've i've leveled up you have leveled up you're like getting too good i'm gonna have to make this harder or you don't have to, <laughs> this is the only time i've ever gotten them all right well good job and i think that's a wonderful note to end today's podcast um you know thank you everyone for listening i guess we we should do a big goodbye since it's <gasps> it is a big a goodbye yeah we won't be back within what the next month I yeah think? i still th- we might be back on january 10th potentially which is my birthday which is, which is the day before classes start but we might potentially be back the following week so well i'd love to have a birthday episode that'd be so i know so right? sick. just, just do stuff you stuff. love yeah. yeah for real but um yeah thanks everyone for listening like Doing this this semester has been such an amazing thing for my life and, like, getting to share what I love, getting to share, like, my two biggest passions, which is art and poetry and writing in general has just been amazing. And I'm I'm really thankful to do it with you, Lauren, like, to do way. it with one of my best friends. Do it with my best friend, like, has been incredible, especially, like, with someone who's so intelligent when it comes to the art world. And Thank I really you. loved it. Girl, so. you use names I don't even know in the quiet <laughs> game. I'm like, do I know enough about art? I don't even know who these people are. No, I won't even lie. Like, sometimes I just look up, like, other, like, famous artists. Because I'm like, I my brain is head empty. Yeah, that's fair. Um, But, yeah, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I guess we'll see you in a month. Um, we'll see you next year. Oh, my. We're going to see y'all in 2023. Two years of saturation italicized. Everyone get ready. <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in to Saturation Italicized on Week 91.1 FM. I've been your host, Lee, in the good year of 2022. And I have been your host, Lauren, except when Lee says her except name is Lauren. Except for when I'm Lauren. And, you know, maybe we'll come back next week and I'll be Lauren. Or next month. And that would be trippy. It'd be crazy. But yeah, we'll see y'all then. Y'all have a great week. Uh, Good luck on your finals and war damn eagle. War damn (laughs) eagle.